Together with the University of Leeds, we're launching a new free-to-access online course, Evaluation for Arts, Culture and Heritage, Principles and Practice. This self-guided course offers the opportunity to hear from experts, develop new approaches and build your evaluation skills and confidence. Whether you're in the early stages of your career, you're a long-term sector professional, or you're a senior leader, this course is for anyone working across arts, culture and heritage, looking to learn more about evaluation. Visit culturalvalue.org.uk for more information about the course, which will be launching in September 2023. How do we make evaluation meaningful? How can we identify the right questions to ask and the most crucial information to capture? How can we give our participants valuable experiences and the space to express themselves? In 2021, the Centre for Cultural Value responded to growing industry-wide demand for support with evaluation. The result was the Evaluation Principles a collection of critical ideas that guide cultural sector workers through the process of evaluation. We developed the evaluation principles through an informed research process involving over 40 representatives from across the sector, providing a variety of roles and perspectives. It's been two years since we first launched the evaluation principles, so we wanted to check in. In Reflecting Value, Evaluation Principles in Practice, we're talking to people in the cultural sector about the principles and how they have found using them in their work. Hi, I'm Chupley Lowry, and you're listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. In our third and final episode of the season, we're chatting about rigour, one of the principles that helps keep us in check when it comes to being grounded and analytical in our evaluation. Keeping our evaluations rigorous is crucial if we want our findings to be accurate, giving us the best chance of learning from our activity and making meaningful changes to it. But how do we make our evaluation rigorous? How do we identify the appropriate methods for our work and apply them properly? How do we balance pure numbers with the human stories that come out of evaluation? In this episode, we'll discuss these questions, as well as debating the benefits of qualitative and quantitative data. In this episode, we'll be speaking with a variety of evaluators working in the cultural sector. First, we'll hear from Robin Dowlin, an independent evaluator based in Manchester, who specialises in understanding in-the-moment experiences, using a range of participatory and co-creative evaluation practices. She's been immersed in culture and evaluation throughout her career, and in a previous role for the Centre for Cultural Value, she hosted this podcast. Looking at evaluation through the lens of her work around culture, health and well-being, Robin talked to us about what rigour means to her. So welcome, Robin. Nice to see you today. We're going to chat today about rigour. Um, so when it comes to evaluation, what does rigour mean to you? 
So what does making an evaluation rigorous mean? And what questions do you ask yourself about this principle in your work? So I think that's a, a really interesting question. And in kind of prepping for this recording, I was having a look at some different definitions of rigour. Because I think when we think about rigour, we think it's all this very um, strict process focused approach to doing research and evaluation but actually when I was looking at some of the definitions the ones that really spoke to me that I don't think many people would necessarily put two and two together with this word rigor was about carefully thoroughly and precisely looking at something which I think is a really interesting way of framing rigor because I think people assume it's oh I've got to do everything perfectly meticulously in order for this to be rigorous but I think this other definition about kind of careful evaluation that's really thorough is maybe a bit more human. You can do careful research or evaluation that's really kind of focused on the people that you're working with without just going in, taking data and leaving. Because that's what that's what could happen if we really took this kind of strict, it has to be this, it has to be that. And I think these kind of questions of rigour, whilst they're not always at the forefront of my mind, when you sit and think about them a little bit, it's it's that kind of how do I implement those ideas of care and being thorough in my own practices as an evaluator, as a researcher? And how do I kind of communicate that approach as well? It's like, I will get you where you need to go, but it might be a slightly different journey to what you're expecting. Next, we'll hear from Anthony Schrag, an artist and researcher whose cultural practice emphasises people. His work is largely in the moment and performative, and includes, in his own words, blowing things up, climbing on buildings, attempting to break a world record for hand-holding, and walking 2,500 kilometres across Europe. When it comes to evaluation, Anthony is wary of taking people out of the equation. He favours a qualitative approach and wants to embrace the untidy tensions that come from conversation. So I'm interested in what this word means to you, Anthony. So both in terms of how the sector would interpret these questions around rigour, but also how would you approach rigour yourself? Rigour is a really interesting thing because I think fundamentally it really means how is something true? And that's really complicated because we will have multiple different domains who want different sorts of truths. We can talk about policymakers who want to look at very specific kind of truth. We can talk about, um, you know, particular artists who want things. I think for me as an artist, the rigour really has to be about something to do with individual alignment with kind of a social exploration. And, and I think rigor for me as an artist, again, speaking with my hat on as an artist, rigor fundamentally means something to do with conflict. And, and the reason I mean that is that when I'm interrogating a project, a place, people, whatever it is, a context, there are multiple different layers of different sorts of people. There are people who want me to be there. There are people who don't. There are people who think that the context I'm exploring is fine. There are people who think that it's not. And so the rigor is kind of making sure that there are multiple different perspectives. And as soon as you have those multiple different perspectives, there's going to be conflict. I, I kind of always go back to, I use, I use the quote endlessly. So as a practitioner, my rigor is really about um, ensuring multiple different voices are heard potentially and, and most likely not all that I will necessarily agree with either. Yeah, that's really interesting. It also makes me think about this idea of being truthful and that 
truth may be slightly different for lots of different people too. Oh, definitely, definitely. So I'm 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 technically not not this this will make sense. I'm technically Dr. Anthony Shrag. I'm a doctor. I, I have a PhD. My brother is also Dr. Shrag, and he is a medical doctor. And so we often have these really interesting discussions about truth because his domain of truth is a very scientific positivistic one. And he'll talk about you know, things like, you know, they have to be real, they have to be testable, they have to be systematizable. Um, and he comes from what, what you would call a positivist world. I don't. I come from a very different worldview. And we sort of have this debate and discussion about what is truthful quite often. And, and the way that we've kind of come to a conclusion about it is that in his world, he'll use, for example, gravity. He'll use physics. He'll use scientific understandings that says, you know, it doesn't matter what happens. If you trip, you will fall. Gravity is real. That's what matters. My argument is that I don't discount gravity. It's just not important to me. What's important to me is if I trip, how do I get up? Who helps me get up? What's the context of me getting up from that? Do I have the resources to, to develop from that? So I'm not suggesting that these ideas of, of truth are, are antithetical, that they kind of collapse. It's just a question of saying, how do we agree on what the most important truth for a particular context is? And now we'll hear from Kirsty Sedgman, an award-winning cultural studies scholar who has spent her career studying how we construct and maintain our competing value systems, working out how people can live side by side in the same world, yet come to understand it in such totally different ways. Kirsty is passionate about exploring rigour and what it means in cultural contexts. And for her, it's important to recognise that analytical evaluation will always be complemented by our own interpretation of it. This is a topic that's very close to my heart. A couple of years ago, I published a journal article called On Rigour in Theatre Audience Research, where I was really wrestling through the complexities of that question. And one of the things I spent a lot of time studying audiencing and cultural participation of all kinds, both in an academic context, but also working for a couple of years as an arts impact evaluator outside of the academy, working with arts organisations and arts funders to capture the value of cultural participation. And what sometimes worries me when we have these conversations about how we can do this kind of research well, is that we risk ignoring a long history of attempts to, to wrestle with those kinds of epistemological questions, what knowledge is and how we capture it and whether we can trust it, when it's about people's lived experiences, which are extraordinarily hard to, to capture and to analyse in a way that really does make sense. And what I've really devoted my career to is bringing the methods, but also the debates from an academic discipline that, that we often call audience studies, part of cultural studies, which emerged with the Contemporary Centre for Cultural Studies in Birmingham, long since sadly defunct. And what you realise when you read these actually really old papers is that these are not new questions. That question of whether and how we can do this kind of work well it's not just something we're beginning to wrestle with now. In fact, those questions have been asked and to a large part answered by people going as far back as the 60s, 70s, 80s. And in my discipline of theatre studies, there's been a real resistance to any kind of work that seeks to capture 
people's experiences for all kinds of reasons that I've written about a lot. And one of the common complaints about this kind of work is that we're seeking to capture some kind of objective truth of experience, or that we're claiming a positivistic approach to knowledge. But what these audience studies texts have told us is that actually we need to recognise as researchers that there is no such thing as a direct slice of truth when it comes to evidencing the value of experience and this kind of rich, ineffable things that people go through when they're making sense of art. Instead, what I say in On Rigor and what people have argued for quite a long time is that we need to take an interpretivist approach to knowledge. So for me, rigor isn't about using a series of fixed methods, in particular combinations. That's not what makes a project good. Instead, it's about paying attention to the social encounter of the research itself, to the fact that you're asking questions of audiences in particular ways, that you are a particular person who will be seen in a certain way, that there are those power dynamics when you're doing interviews or focus groups or surveys, that people are necessarily responding in the ways that are limited by the methodologies that you've chosen, or in the case of cognitive scientific approaches that are measuring people's brains and bodies to figure out what happens physically to people while they're watching, that's able to tell us, well, is that able to answer those questions? That it's not able fundamentally to tell us how people are making sense of those physical sensations. So for me, qualitative research is a way to start to understand how people are processing experiences by paying attention to the process of language use in action as people are reaching for words to describe these indescribable experiences. You can't then just snip out the thing that people say at the end and claim that it is absolutely a reflection of the richness of that experience as a whole because we are interpreting those, those discursive utterances and we're bringing them together with the things that other people have said. We are telling stories about them. And for me, rigor is about being really open about that process as a whole, rather than just reaching for the end point, the thing that people say at the end of a long conversation. When it comes to being rigorous in evaluation, we talk about needing to stay grounded. How can we make sure we're drawing accurate conclusions, ones that actually relate to our methods? A big part of this is identifying the right model for the right situation. When will a quantitative or qualitative approach fit best? And when should the two be combined into a mixed methods approach? So Robin, thinking about how rigor slots into the process of evaluating, where does it come in your work? Is it a case of having methods in place before the evaluation process begins? Or is there a need to adapt for the situation? So a sense that a rigorous approach might only be rigorous in certain circumstances. So I think what's really important in this kind of understanding and applying rigorous approaches is having your structure kind of set in stone. What approach am I taking? Whose voices are going to be in the mix? Why are these people's voices in the mix and not these other people's voices? And that's really important to start right at the beginning of your journey is having those things in mind. But I think 
Flexibility is also incredibly important within these circumstances. Things change over time and it's okay and it's not going to disrupt the rigorous approach that you're taking if you have to take a slight detour along the way. So I think it's, yeah, you can be rigorous and flexible at the same time. It's really sitting down and thinking about what rigor means to you as well in my case as an evaluator or what rigor means to you as an organization if you're some if you're doing an internal evaluation or you want to be able to show a rigorous process and I think it is really having having time and space to have these discussions right at the outset of a project and not waiting till later down the line. So then it makes me think a little bit about um suitable methods as well within the evaluation so you touched on some of them already um but I guess it's about identifying what approach fits where and whether qualitative data or quantitative data will be of use so what advice would you give to people trying to identify the right method to approach their evaluation are there ways of determining where quantitative or qualitative methods are best placed And what indicators can evaluators take from their activity about which will fit for their feedback? Yeah, I think it's there's kind of two two approaches to this answer, I think. So the first one, this is probably going to be a common thread throughout this discussion. You can really determine whether qualitative, quantitative or mixed methods approaches are going to be most suitable based on the questions you want answers to, which sounds like a really simplistic way of phrasing this, but it is so important. If we want ways that we can capture, um, say, a change over time in like well-being for example you might opt for a well-being scale that's validated so you can say at time one people were at this level of well-being and at time two they were at x level of well-being whereas if we want to know more about kind of lived experience how someone felt taking part in something uh what emotions are maybe attached to these feelings or kind of that internal learning a qualitative method might be more suitable. And then mixed methods in our ideal world is bringing those two things together appropriately. So a lot of people will gather quantitative data and qualitative data, and they kind of sit very separately from one another. Whereas what the, well, the joy in mixed methods is that you can actually use the data to explain what's happening in the other data that you're getting with um, your kind of quantitative findings how can you use your qualitative findings to explain the trends that you're seeing in the data and why is that important so an example is in the kind of music and dementia literature you will not see a particular change in any scores before and after music intervention but when you talk to people about their experiences they'll say I had a wonderful time it was joyous it was fun I felt something I'd not felt in years And so that tells us something about the way in which we capture our understanding of how music impacts people living with dementia. Are we using the wrong tools, for example? What advice would you give, Kirsty, to people trying to identify the right method to approach their evaluation? Are there ways of determining where quantitative or qualitative methods are best placed? And what indicators can evaluators take from their activity about which will fit? for their feedback. The best piece of advice I was ever given was by my late dearly departed supervisor, Professor Martin Barker, who was a foundational member of the audience studies clan. And what he said when he supervised me during my PhD is that 
every single method we use has limitations. It's able to show us part of that picture. But the limitations only become weaknesses when they pass unobserved. So for me, everything starts with the research question. What is it that we want to know? And then when we're designing that methodological toolkit, our task is to pick those implements and then to really carefully design them, whether it's questionnaires or a semi-structured interview question schedules, to really carefully design them in a way that's, that is able to draw out some of that information. But what I've been saying for years is my big utopian dream is that one day we could all together do a giant audience research study of the same, maybe the same event or the same kinds of audiences, where we all use our own particular methodological toolkit, but apply it in combination to think about how the data that I produce, the discursive data of talking to people and paying attention to not just what people say, but how they say it, how they put things into words when they're trying to wrestle with and negotiate those experiences through memory. How could we pattern that together with, say, eye tracking software or a study of people's physiological heart rate responses? Because we can learn more and we can deepen our understanding further, I think, when we use those methods in combination. And in some feedback that the centre has had on some events that they've run on evaluation recently they found that people overwhelmingly said that they wanted to know how to use this kind of data better and I wondered if I think you've already just started touching on it but are there any practical ways that people can get to grips with quantitative um, or any resources that they can use to start the process with? Well, Martin's specialty was what he called QualiQuant method, which I know before he died, he was trying to rename to the Q2Q method. And that's what he trained me in. So he predominantly used questionnaires to capture audiences' thoughts and feelings about film and TV. And for him, the quantitative information that surveys can capture, um, whether it's a Likert scale, which asks people to rate their experience on a scale of excellent to very poor, or whether it's the orientations that they take up their sense of self in relation to why they've chosen to event, attend that particular event. He believed that the quantitative information could be patterned together with the qualitative. So we could ask ourselves not just um, how many people said that this experience was excellent. It absolutely wasn't about using that to say, okay, well, 90% of people thought this was an excellent show. 60% thought that that one was excellent. So we must fund more of A than B because, of course, in and of themselves, Martin understood and I firmly believe that those quantifiable metrics are meaningless. My excellence might be very well be your poor. That's why you need the qualitative data capturing mechanism to ask people, why have you chosen to rate it in that way rather than this. And what that then allows you to do, of course, is to take the kind of patterns that emerge in the quantitative data to go, okay, well, did people who thought that it was excellent talk about it in a different way to people who thought that it was just okay? But also you can then do it in the other way around, which I've done myself in things like my um, National Theatre Wales study. I noticed a particular pattern emerging where a group of people used words like surprised and surprising in relation to a particular quantitative choice they said that they attended out of curiosity 
but I started with the qual. I went, actually, that word surprising is really interesting. And it's coming up with this group of people. So let's pull them out of the data set and let's take a look at their other answers to see if there is a pattern there. And there was. So you can balance the qual with the quant information to draw out those bigger, broader patterns if you do a questionnaire with a big enough data set. But then, of course, what you're able to tell from that, the question of, well, why were people who said that they attended because they were curious more likely to talk about being happy about being surprised? In order to answer that question, really, I needed to do interview work because that gives you the depth of information. What is your experience of identifying the difference in projects, Anthony, and the ways that you might evaluate them? And To me, I think, I think part of participation project and part of where it becomes interesting is when you give agency to publics to decide on their own evaluative processes. If you give them process to say, actually, what's important to me? And yeah, okay, you need numbers or yeah, okay, you need something else. But actually, I'm going to get involved in this project much more effectively and, and with much more energy if I also have my evaluative criteria in the project, because then they know what success is, then they know how they can be part of that, because then they know and they, and they will become massive advocates for it. What you've just described is allowing for the participants to then shape the methods and the research and to be adaptive. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of starting at the beginning embedding it how do you design that how do you allow for space for it to move and flex whilst retaining that rigor as well yeah but then you go back to that question of like rigor again because this is the assumption that we're starting with something that we do know and actually that is a really positivistic numerical idea and if you're setting if you're starting the project at the very very beginning saying we know exactly what we want out of the end of it then then there's no humans involved that's just robots and calculations so whenever I do projects to sort of think about that flexibility, it, it does start with those questions of going, well, what are our bigger sets of questions? It builds in criteria of success that are not necessarily rigid. You know, so for example, is it, I want to explore how different ways that people can engage with museums. That's an overarching theme, right? And we can all say as a, as a, as a group, are we all kind of agreeing that that's one of the elements that we're trying to do? Great, we can do that. As we get closer to the project, we can refine and, and develop what we want to do out of that. So it might be, instead of saying we want to explore new ways of engaging, it might be, how can we think about engaging with particular objects? And then the next step down could be, how can we gather information about how they get engaged with particular projects about these sorts of things? So you can continuously hone down and you continuously change. I, I think I think the idea of, of rigor being, you know, this systematizable, reproducible experiment is really based in the sciences and the social sciences. And I always kind of get really frustrated is that why do we as artists, as cultural people, continuously defer back to methods that don't exist in our domain? Why do we assume that we need to prove ourselves under these criteria? Because that's not who we are and that's not what we find valuable. So where can we then place our value, which if our value is human experience, Great, let's talk about human experience. We will not be able to capture every single element, but if we have enough and sufficient that we feel captures what it is that we're doing, that's wonderful evaluation. Rigorous evaluation is supposed to be empirical, rooted in what our research tells us, not what we're motivated to make of it. 
So how can we account for the qualitative stories and testimonies that we collect and relate them to our findings in an appropriate way? Do we risk being inaccurate when we get anecdotal? When it comes to the evaluation, we talk about avoiding the temptation to be anecdotal and to tell stories without analysis. So how can we make sure we know the difference between describing the outcomes of our work and actually interpreting those outcomes? How do we make sure that the qualitative data that we collect is presented as evidence rather than just a description that fits our means? And is there still space for the original voices of the people that we're evaluating to be in our findings as well? So I'll answer that second question first. Yes, it is so important that those original voices are embedded within uh, evaluation because that's, at the end of the day, those are the people that you're wanting to make a difference to. I've recently done some um, some kind of evaluation workshops where I've actually said, don't don't be afraid of the anecdotal as well storytelling in a way has kind of been tarnished as that oh well it's only happened to one person and I think we really need to move towards in terms of qualitative data collection is how do we use these stories to understand people's experiences and it's okay if that one person has had that experience but what we want to be able to show is that other people have also taken similar things away just seems to haunt me this word anecdotal I think if we frame it more about finding ways to collect stories that are done in a more rigorous way. So I guess one example of this kind of anecdotal lens is I worked with Doncaster Community Arts, uh, Darts, on evaluating their singing programme for people living with dementia. And this wasn't captured as part of the evaluation, but it was something that was so important that showed how significant these weekly singing groups were in the lives of people who took part. One of the participants um, had sadly passed away just after I'd finished the evaluation and he had asked for his funeral instead of flowers for money to be collected to sustain the programme. And that is anecdotal, but it really signifies how important this programme was in this person's life that he said, I would like as my kind of final moment to be able to continue to support this programme. And things like that are so powerful and yet would be kind of seen as, oh, it's a it's an anecdote. It doesn't matter. We can't bring it in. It's not rigorous. But actually, it's that communication with this person's family at the end of the programme. And it's just finding ways to capture these things. How do we bring this into the mix? And something that I really like using is reflective diaries, because as an evaluator, when I'm externally evaluating something, I can't be there all the time. <laughs> I don't have that capacity. But if someone can take half an hour after one of these sessions to just fill in their reflections, their notes, that's data that we can use and we can compare their notes over time, even if it's one person. So it's finding ways to capture data in a way that isn't detracting from these significant experiences that people are having by just saying, we've not analysed this to death, so therefore it's not valid as an experience. So it's still rigorous. It's still finding ways to capture these things. And yeah, just this idea of being a bit more human about data collection it is this kind of careful, thoughtful process if we do look at things a bit differently.
Kirsty, I just wonder about how we can make sure that we know the difference between describing the outcomes of our work from actually interpreting those outcomes too. And how do we make sure that the qualitative data that we collect is presented as evidence rather than just a description that fits our means as well? This all comes back, of course, to rigour. Because when we're talking about, well, how do we make sense of these different things that people might tell us? How do we do that by using an analytical approach rather than what Martin used to talk about is the danger of um, a report that just offers lists of difference, he used to say. Oh, isn't it interesting that person A thought this, but person B thought something completely different. That is kind of interesting in that I'm always interested in everything that audiences say. But in and of itself, in isolation, those things aren't particularly meaningful, which is why that ability to pattern, to draw out patterns, often from a broader data set, whether it's either um, a broad array of questionnaires or just a, a lot of words produced by a wider range of interviews, that can enable you to start to draw out patterns from the data in which certain people seem to be taking up particular shared orientations in relation to an experience and because of that experience are understanding it processing it navigating it and making sense of it afterwards in a particular way the challenge though and I talked with Martin a lot about this um, before he sadly passed is doing that in a way that doesn't fall into that segmentation model that a lot of funders do, that there is only a certain number, say five categories of people who might attend. But again, that's why it's really important that we are always aware that what we're doing is a process of interpretation. Anthony, you're primarily focused on these qualitative approaches. How do you kind of capture people's experiences, you know, in their own voices, but retain something that's truthful and grounded in evidence as well? You know, so as a practitioner, the kinds of evidence that I have to gather are really subjective to me too, because I have to then understand my primary goal and my primary aim is to develop a really good piece of work. That really good piece of work is grounded upon understanding different multiple things, people's experiences, contexts, situations. And so that'll always be really subjective to me. That's going to be really different than the person who commissioned me or the people who commissioned me who want different types of evidence. And the question I always kind of think about is, do you really have the evidence that you that you need or do you have the evidence that you think you need? You know, the, the, the classic for me is, is the numerics kind of quantitative. I don't think quantitative is bad. It's just that it's useful in different contexts. So I do a lot of work in rural arts organizations and the numerics of rurality is really, it's really difficult, you know. So, so I did a project in a small town called Helmsdale. It's a village of 600 people. 60 people came. That's 10% of the population. Now, if I went to do a project in Glasgow and Edinburgh or London or wherever, and I said, I need 10% of the population, what sort of numbers are we talking about there? That's ridiculous. And yet, potentially, organizations are saying, well, if I, if I hand this in for evaluation that there were 60 people, you know, that this is not going to be considered sufficient enough. Because th there is an assumption, especially in participation, that numbers equals quality. Don't match. Numbers do not mean quality. <laughs> I think that 
it's a really good way to start thinking about how do we define quality in evaluation methods. So what questions can practitioners and organisations be asking themselves about their methods and what resources can they refer to to keep their evaluation work up to standard? Totally. I think that's a fantastic question. Um, a colleague of mine, Rachel Blanche, developed a, a toolkit called Is This the Best It Can Be with Creative Scotland, which is Scotland's national arts agency. But the toolkit Is This the Best It Can Be is a really amazing little resource, which um, goes back to the earlier part of your question, which is how do we sort of make sure that that aligns? The toolkit aims to try and interrogate what are the conditions of quality that we want? So for example, is it numerics? Is it evidence based on individuals? Is it is it a great time? Is it great art? Let's let's all get every single partner involved in a project early on and qualify what's the success rates? What is the bits that we think should be successful? Not to suggest that they all have to align, but we all have to understand each other's perspectives, you know. And I think that's that that's that kind of thing that is missing often in projects, especially in participatory projects is that we don't get everyone in the room to figure out what do we want out of this, you know? And, and again, we go back to evaluation all the time is that it's always tracked on at the end. It shouldn't be, it should be put absolutely at the beginning so you can figure out how the success actually works. So the, the toolkit I've used several times is really great to kind of understand that, okay, for me, my criteria of success is a piece of artwork that looks like this, this, and this. But then I also it's useful to help to understand that maybe an organization wants different types of evidence. They maybe want to have numerics. Maybe they want to have their quality of success is that children have a great time. Great. Then what I can do is as I'm working, figure out how I can help that for them and they can help me figure out how to do it for me. So if it is subjective and it is, it's just deciding those, those and being explicit about what those conditions and criteria are at the beginning because there will always be mismatches. I, I don't, you know, this idea of evidence, especially in terms of policymaking is really, it's really ridiculous. It's, how do you evidence culture? Where, where do you start from with that, right? But I think if we're, if we're clear at the start, then it means that we know that we have something to compare to at the end of whether we've succeeded or not and what we can learn from. To be truly rigorous in evaluation, it's important to acknowledge and be mindful of the context in which a project took place and the context in which it's being evaluated. It's important to consider who is evaluating a project and what unconscious bias they might have when drawing conclusions from the evidence. What are the gaps in their knowledge and experience? How might one evaluator's reading of evidence be different to another's based off of their identity and experiences? How can we be reflective in our approach, acknowledging and managing the challenges that unconscious bias poses? One of the questions I had was around unconscious bias, particularly thinking about bias within um, evaluation, but specifically when it comes to rigour as well. It's so important, I think, to have that self-awareness of what are you bringing into this what is your lens what is your background that has led you to have the certain viewpoint of the world that you're starting off from and I guess thinking about how how when it comes to reporting and reviewing the data how can we manage the challenges that unconscious bias presents particularly when you're working in small teams or as you say independently as well if it's just one person who's reviewing all of this how can we challenge manage 
move forward understanding that inevitably there's going to be unconscious bias there I am not sure if it's possible to challenge it without confronting it within the act of writing within the act of presenting the data which is why it's really important I think if we're going to do this work well we can't just lead our participants towards the thing that actually we want them to say using what Eleonora Belfiore calls that bullshit model of advocacy and then take that testimonial of success strip it from all the surrounding conversation that communicative context in which it was uttered and slap it on the page and say that this is absolutely the truth of that experience what we need to do is to find ways to tell the story of that encounter as a whole so in my book locating the audience where I talk about the National Theatre Wales project I talk about an interviewee, Carol, who did feel really quite discomforted by the experience because of the story that it was telling about her beloved hometown. And what I try to do is give readers a sense of how that conversation unfolded. Not because it's just human context, but because that is the data, the way that she went round for 45 minutes between saying, maybe I'm not the right person to judge. And actually, no, this is my home. I know it's stories. I know it's history. So maybe I do have the right to judge. But she wasn't able to close that loop. And we lose a huge amount of that important information, that sense-making process I was talking about. If you just pick out the thing that she said at the end, which is, but I did like it. I did like it. It was good. I think in terms of, well, everyone says, oh, quantitative research, because of this rigour, it's not going to be biased. It's not going to be X, Y, and Z, but you're still having to interpret it. So I think it's really, it's that kind of openness and it kind of ties into that kind of careful practice as well. It's creating spaces in, for example, for a group of staff members to feel comfortable enough with each other to have these discussions. I think we have to ask the uncomfortable questions to be able to really get to the the crux of why 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 we're doing a certain piece of work and how we're going to work with people. And that can be uncomfortable. I mean, I, in my work, I always put a kind of self-declared statement in the kind of introduction saying, this is where I come from, this is my experiences, what has influenced the way that I have looked at this data. And I think whether you're doing quantitative, qualitative or mixed methods research, you should really have a think about those kind of questions of what am I bringing to the table? What are my life experiences that have led me to this moment in interpreting this data? Because, yeah, that's part of the context that I think is is missed a lot of the time is, yeah, who who we are as evaluators. We put our name on a report and then hand it over to the organisation. We really need to say this is where I've come from. This is why. I thought this piece of work would be interesting because at the end of the day, we're applying for these different tenders and commissions. And so you find the work interesting, but it's, yeah, why? Why did I find that interesting? Why am I best suited to do this bit of work as well? Evaluation doesn't look the same everywhere. 
and it certainly isn't carried out at the same scale across the cultural sector. Different sized organisations will have different concerns when it comes to being rigorous, and some practitioners are going it alone. When we're working on a smaller scale and trying to do things within proportion, can we really implement larger scale quantitative approaches? And what resources can we use to make sure our methods stand up to a rigorous assessment? So thinking about some of the challenges which we've just been looking at, I wonder if you've noticed any challenges that are common for other evaluators when it comes to being rigorous. So I'm thinking, for instance, of areas that could be more daunting for people when conducting evaluation for smaller organisations, such as the coding and filtering of data. Are there ways to make these in-depth areas of evaluation accessible to practitioners and organisations who have limited resources? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, people are so, so, so stretched for time at the moment. That's a common experience over every piece of work that I've been doing at the moment. And that's really challenging because first and foremost, a lot of people say if you're in a kind of um, project management role or you're delivering on the ground with groups of people, that that is the more important part is that the work gets done so that it can have these really wonderful impacts that the evaluation would capture. And so I think it really puts micro organizations at a disadvantage compared to organizations that are bigger. And I don't have the answers to that. Unfortunately, some big organizations will have inbuilt evaluation capacity, which isn't possible when you've got a one or two person team. So it's it's about being a little bit kind of creative, I think, with that kind of data in terms of, um, so for example, I, I am chair of the board of String of Hearts Community Interest Company, who are a micro organization trying to connect older people to music making activities in Trafford and Sale in Manchester. And the question of evaluation always comes up, but it's how do we have the capacity within such a small team to capture these sort of things? So String of Hearts actually got in touch with, I think it was some social care courses at universities and managed to get kind of some student, some students to kind of have a look at the anonymized data that had come out and had been captured, but hadn't had the chance to be analysed. So it's thinking about those sort of things is how can you kind of use connections, build new connections as well, that can really help with that kind of layer of interpretation on the data that you might not have time to do yourself because not everybody has budget for an external evaluator. And there is kind of inequity within the sector, I think, of who can and can't buy in external support for this kind of thing. And that's going to be, yeah, a challenge yeah, across the board, I think. And we can't expect, and I think this is reflected in the centre's evaluation principles as well, is it has to be, yeah, reasonable for what an organisation can have capacity for. We can't expect a micro-organisation to have the same time and energy to dedicate to as a, a kind of massive organisation might have with that embedded evaluation. So I think we really have to question that as well the kind of inequity that's inherent that we can't do an awful lot about but I hope maybe I don't know maybe somebody listening might have <laughs> the answers for this sort of thing. I've worked with lots of organizations I I don't think I have ever experienced a cultural organization 
who's done things like coding. I don't, I don't think they have the resources to do that. The question I would have is, do they need to? You know, so what what is the under, underlying reasons and assumptions that they have to do that? Does that go back to the idea that you're trying to get a truth out of numerics? And if you are trying to get a truth out of numerics, what kind of world is that? Because actually, I live in a human world where actually numbers are just part of it, as are my emotions and someone's responses. I think organizations need to reflect on what are the what are the assumptions about things like coding, things like the data that they gather, and do those the, the reasons they're they're gathering it is it useful for them it is probably useful for for many but i would then go argue are we doing it just because there's an assumption that we need to do it now i think yes we always need to evaluate that's that's standard yes we need to evaluate because we actually you know we're receiving public money we're developing works with communities we're doing culture all of those things need to make sure that it's accountable and it's and it's uh, delivering the work that it's set out to deliver but I don't necessarily think we need to have a universal understanding of what evaluation needs to look like. It needs to be contextual to the situation and the context. Because it goes back to that thing when I talk to my students about evaluation is, are you doing that thing which goes, I'm going to find out if people enjoy art and therefore how I'm going to do that is count how many people went to a show. If you count how many people went to a show, it's not going to tell you if they enjoyed it. So... It's it's that sort of methodological alignment, which I know are sort of big, bigger academic words, but actually aligning your methodologies to what you want to get out of it is going to mean that you will deliver better projects in the future because you know exactly what you need to find out. Something that I think is just so important is having those really open and honest conversations with other organisations who have done similar things. I think we're, we don't want to reinvent the wheel here and having those conversations and also bringing in other research and other evaluation data is really important as well. And I also think it's something that I have, have started doing and I think is really important is bringing in the context in which this work is happening. I think sometimes we forget how much is going on in the world at this particular moment in time and how it can affect the the projects we do the programs we try to implement it's having that real kind of open what is happening at this moment in time and how could it be impacting I, I talked about it in terms of the supernatural elements of evaluation what can't we control and it's fine that we can't control it so things like the evaluation I was doing with um, Doncaster Community Arts it's the hottest summer on record and we're working with older people the queen died cost of living crisis, energy crisis, change of prime minister. And that's going to really impact on a programme, even if it's not explicit. And so it's really kind of con considering those things as, as well. It's asking questions about what's happening at this moment in time. Why are we best suited as an organisation to be doing this bit of work? For example, it's what what have, what's led to this moment? Because these evaluations they don't, and programmes, they don't spring out of nowhere. They have a history that needs merging into it as well. You've been listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. Today's episode featured Robin Dowlin, Kirsty Sedgman and Anthony Schrag. If you'd like to get the latest updates from the Centre for Cultural Value, you can sign up for our newsletter at culturalvalue.org.uk forward slash sign up. 
I've been your host, Chuck Lee Lowry. Thanks for listening.